Welcome to TR Talks, where your hosts, Team Raj Paul, talks everything residential real estate in Toronto and the GTA, from buying, selling, leasing, investing, rental management, an unfiltered conversation with industry experts, helping you stay up to date with the market. Hi, everyone. My name is Nicholas Sepp. I'm your host today, and I have with me Gita Rajpal. Hello, Nick. It's going to be a very exciting episode today. I have with us on the line David Feld from We Are Law Dossier. Hi, David. Hi there. How are you doing? Good. Do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks. Uh, yeah, my name's David. I'm a real estate lawyer. I've been doing this for more than 20 years now, I dare say, with my wife. We started a law firm back then and we're passionate about what we do with an amazing team of about 20. And yeah, all we do is residential real estate law, both buying and selling condos, houses, new construction, everything like that. Yeah, and we've been working with you, David. It's been a few years. And actually, now that I think of it, how did you first connect? I believe it was through Xerxes. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I remember Xerxes Baruchan, the coolest name I've ever heard still to date. And uh, yeah, we just started working together. We clicked right away and he was happy with the work and he introduced us to you guys. And since then, it's been history since then. It's been great. It really has been. And I think it's going to be really valuable having you on the call today because we want to really dive into the perspective of, from a seller's perspective, we've now sold their home. What is right. happening for a seller and especially for those first-time sellers who have no clue of what to expect. What's happening from a real estate lawyer's perspective from the time the home has sold and firmed up till closing? For sure. Yeah. So once you sold a property, they always tell you, you need a lawyer. And that's true. So the first thing is to retain a lawyer. And the first thing the lawyer would do is review just in sale and any amendments, because you want to make sure what you're selling is what you can sell. Like, let's say it's a condo with maybe a unit, a parking and a locker. Those are three separate pins or thumbnails. You want to make sure the lawyer wants to make sure that they're selling the right things and that the seller has those things to sell. You'd be surprised that once in a while, you know, you'd see a condo being sold unit parking locker, but the seller doesn't own the locker. So that's the lawyer's job is to give good title to the purchaser's lawyer and to ultimately to the purchaser. Then, of course, to identify the client, the purchaser would have to give ID, valid ID, also to just to prove they're Canadian, because as you know, there are certain rules that apply, which we may talk about. Yes. And of course, to find out the contact information, the occupation information, all those things are now mandatory for a lawyer to find out. And it makes sense, especially given the fraud you've been hearing about in the news and things like that. Just makes sense. Absolutely. And the next thing is to determine the marital status, right? Because once in a while you'll see, and it's very common these days, where only one person's on title, but yet they're married. So does the spouse who's not on title have to consent to the transaction? The answer is usually yes, they do if it's a matrimonial home. So those are kinds of things that that have to be found out. And if they're going to consent, do they have to get independent legal advice, ILA or not? Are they going to waive independent legal advice? Those are all the kinds of things that that a lawyer addresses with the seller. Now, quick question on that, like just on spousal consent. Have you found that now it's time for closing and actually that spousal consent was never actually given? (laughs) So, you know, that's the thing. So a good lawyer captures these things early on. And I call it front loading. So you want to front load your file and really understand your client, know your client early on. So, you know, if there's going to be an issue with consent, you know, so usually with us, for instance, we've already asked the client, we already have the answers. 
And now we're looking for consent and we usually get it very quickly so we know things are going to move smoothly. If there's going to be an issue, we want to address it early. There may be other lawyers involved, like family lawyers, if there's a divorce or separation going on. There could be arguments going on about even selling the home. So those are the kinds of things we want to address early on to make sure there's no damages for either party. No, for sure. And again, from the seller's perspective, in terms of information, like, you know, of course, they've got utilities and adjustments and disbursements and all of that fun stuff that has to happen at your end. Is there something that you can share now? Like, well, what is it that a seller has to prepare for and send to you or to the lawyer's office as they're getting prepared for closing? Yeah, definitely. So first, and then just before I get to the last thing is to find out if they're a resident of Canada. Because if they're not a resident of Canada, there is a 25% holdback, as you probably know. So those are things that we have to discuss. The NRST, the non-resident speculation tax, not just a holdback, actually. It's a tax they have to pay on the sale. So that's the other thing. Then you're asked, what do they have to provide us? So their ID, any leases they have with any tenants, because we want to make sure that's a smooth transition as well. We talked about spousal consent being smooth. Some of the issues that sometimes arise, is the tenant leaving smooth, right? Or is the tenant staying on? Things like that, so tenants. They have to give us an updated mortgage documents as well as line of credit documents because we have to request a discharge because on the day of closing, we're going to pay those off and we're going to discharge the mortgage and line of credit. We ask them for property taxes because We're going to ask them to pay their last property tax and then we adjust backwards. So we adjust accordingly on the statement of adjustments at closing. And then, like you said, with utilities, we ask them to cancel any pre-authorized payments for taxes or things like that. Any rental equipment, we have to adjust for rental equipment. That's one thing that's very important. And sometimes that should always be, and this is a hint to all (laughs) realtors, it should always be in the agreement of purchase and sale, whether there are rental items or not. Oh, yes. We have seen some (laughs) issues with that. Exactly. There isn't a realtor who hasn't. So if you've done 17 closings in your life, you've probably seen an issue. Yeah. So yeah, David, you were mentioning about tenants being in the property or maybe even continuing the lease. What are some things that uh, will make your life easier as well as the seller's life easier? If let's say the buyer does want to continue with the tenant being on the lease, just because I know we have quite a few investors that are listening to our podcast as well. So just a little tip. Well, for sure. There, there's The good news is there are some great standard ORIA clauses, which I'm sure you guys use already, which transfers the tenancy over to the purchaser. Mm-hmm. And it's very smooth. So that's not a problem. It's more an issue when the tenant doesn't want to leave these days. We've seen a little uptick in that where a tenant doesn't want to leave, even though they've been given proper notice, let's say. So all you want, and you guys are doing it right already, and we've seen it in all your agreements, You want to make sure that proper notice is given. And you also want to put in a clause to say what happens if the tenant doesn't move out. Like who will be responsible? Will it be the seller or the buyer? If you're the seller, you want it to be the buyer who is responsible. And if you're the buyer, you want it to be the seller who is responsible. (laughs) Always the case, yes. That's always the case. So somewhere in between one of those clauses gets accepted. And that's the kind of thing we're seeing a little uptick in now, uh, those kinds of issues, mostly due to some tenants sort of losing their jobs, not easily leaving and but we don't see it that often. It's just it's a little bit. Now, if there isn't a clause to say who's responsible, what happens then? Then Right. Well, then it can go to court and it's not obvious what happens then. And that's the problem. So I always say, especially these days more than ever, put it in there because otherwise it's a gray area as to who's responsible. Right. The seller would argue, well, you've taken it over and. But the purchase would say, well, I I required a vacant possession. And obviously, a a whole person in there and their family, that's not vacant possession. So you're the one who broke the contract and they can sue on that as well. So it it becomes a lawsuit, which we don't want. Uh, Thanks for um, giving us that some insight to that. 
Now, that kind of leads me to my next question. Like, what are the most common legal issues that arise in that you see in the real estate transaction? Yeah, luckily, they're not that horrible. Like, it doesn't happen that often, right? But once in a while, you'll see something like an old mortgage on title. Okay, so something like that. When you do your requisition letter, after you do your title search, you might see some things on title that need to be rectified, like an old mortgage or some lien that was put on, and those can slow down the closing. Those are things that have to be caught early on. So those are things that can happen. Other issues that can happen is, and this is more common these days, is funding doesn't come through for the purchaser for various reasons. One, maybe someone doesn't have their stuff together, or maybe someone, for instance, the appraisal comes in low, which has happened a little more these days, not much, but a little more. And all of a sudden, when that happens, the bank won't loan as much. So the purchaser has to come up with more and they might need a day or two or a week or a month and they might ask for an extension, but that might cause a daisy chain of extensions if the seller themselves was about to buy something. And then there could be damages that can flow across all those closings. We've seen it all. Yeah. Uh, again, those are rare, more an extension of a day or two or a week we sometimes see for those types of things. Okay, so that's good news then. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes there can be an easement or an encroachment and we have to see if that's an issue and if the purchaser is willing to deal with that, if it's a material change to the contract and things like that. We do sometimes see something like that. Will title insurance cover that from the previous owner? Things like that. Well, speaking of title insurance, I don't know if that's a whole topic in itself. Sure. Yeah. I mean, title related matters do come up and title insurance is super important. Just to go down the chain of what I was just saying, which really ties into title insurance, sometimes there's outstanding property taxes. The previous owner may not have paid 15000 in property taxes on the day of closing, and it may not somehow be found. These days, it is usually found out way before closing, but let's say it's not found out until after closing. Title insurance, which we'll talk about, I guess, right now, it covers for unpaid property taxes. It covers for title-related matter like mortgage fraud, because you've heard in the news lately about mortgage fraud, and we've all heard about it. So would these issues that we've heard about in the news where somebody uses fake ID to take out a mortgage on a property and ultimately sell the property and get a check, and would all that be covered by the title insurance of those people who were innocently uh, taken advantage of? And the answer is luckily, yes, it is. I don't know to what extent, to be honest, but they did cover it. And I know them personally. I've actually spoken with the head lead investigator and I know that they've covered it. So it's good. Wow. Yeah. So meaning title insurance. And by the way, everyone should get title insurance with every purchase they do. And it's pretty much what I call mandatory in quotation marks. You can't see me now because we're not on video, but quotation marks, mandatory, because it's not actually mandatory, but no bank will allow a lawyer to close a deal without title insurance on any in this day and age. So you should see it as mandatory. You always get... Yeah. And sorry, I'm just speaking over you. But on that note, if it's not quote unquote mandatory, like, do you find that there's a large number of purchasers that are not going for title insurance? And it's almost a, you know, you kind of wonder like, why wouldn't they? You get the odd person saying, like, how much if I don't get title insurance, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, for us, we just say it doesn't work that way. It's although it's not mandatory legally for you to get title insurance, if you're getting a loan, you should get it. If you're getting, let's say you're not getting a loan, let's say you're doing all cash, okay? So then it's really not mandatory to get title insurance, but we push even harder than to get it because people who commit fraud prey on properties with no mortgage. I don't know if that's a well-known fact or not. But you, if you're a bad guy, you look for a property or girl, you should be, we should be fair, bad guy or girl That's or any, true. or, or even anything, right? Bad anything. If you're a bad person, right? Then 
basically you look for a property with no mortgage on it because those are easier to put a first mortgage on a first fake mortgage. It's harder to put a fake mortgage on a, as a second. So for instance, if there's a regular mortgage, PD, RBC, BMO, Scotiabank, CIBC, one of those big five, it's harder to commit a fraud on those types of properties. So we actually tell people who pay cash for property to approach a bank and get a line of credit. Actually, you don't have to use it, don't have to spend any money, but at least get a line of credit so that you have something registered there. You don't have to actually take out the money and get a title insurance policy. That way you're doubly protected against fraud. That's an excellent tip. That is actually an excellent tip because it's really been the talk of the town with all yes. these recent fraud cases. And I don't think that they're going to reduce. We're still going to see them. People just find very creative ways of doing things. And so title insurance would definitely be something that, especially for people, like you said, that you know are all paid up. I mean, yes, that's exciting, but make sure you still get title insurance. Exactly. So title insurance is a must and it really gives you peace of mind and I don't know if people know this either, but title insurance lasts from the day you buy the property until you sell it. Or if you do change your mortgage, you have to update your policy. But once you buy a title insurance policy, it lasts you until you sell the property. I just want to go back now to the day of closing. I have a question around that. Very often we get asked, like, is there, you know, so what is that time? What time do I have to be out? I wasn't expecting to be out until like six o'clock. But then you've got the buyers, they've got their moving trucks, they're coming in. Exactly. It's like, well, excuse me, we're going to be there at three o'clock. So when does this key have to be handed over? So what is that definitive sure time? So I always say there's two answers to that question. There's a legal answer and a practical answer. Mm -hmm. We do live in a practical world. So we advise our clients practically as well as legally. It's very important. And all lawyers should do that so that there's no issues on the day of closing. Because... Practically, let's talk first. Practically, okay, money is given to the lawyer sometime up to around one o'clock from the bank. Let's say a purchaser is closing, their bank is with TD, just randomly we'll pick TD. Mm -hmm. So 500,000 arrives from TD. Hopefully the client's money is already with the lawyer. So now they have all the money they need and they will have the money around noon or one or two or three latest usually to the other lawyer and it gets there maybe an hour or two or three later. So around one or two or 3 p.m., the seller's lawyer usually has all the money and paperwork they need. They check all the paperwork to make sure it's proper. And same with the purchaser's lawyer. They make sure that all the paperwork is proper from the seller's lawyer and everything's signed. So now they've all checked their paperwork. The seller releases the deed electronically. It used to be, you know, in the old days, they'd bring it over, but not yes. anymore, of course. <laughs> and then the purchaser's lawyer registers the deed and that actual part takes like one minute because all the work's up to that moment. So now it's 3.30 p.m. This is just a random time, but it's close to that time, usually on average. And we say congratulations to everybody. And that's when the purchaser would like to just go there and move in. So like four o'clock, they want to move in. Yeah. And everyone should aim towards approximately that time. And no one should be there. The seller should just be vacant, gone by that time. Legally, they could be there till six though. And some do. Some stay right to the last second and then it's like for pride or for stupidity or for there's a million different reasons why people stay but a good lawyer should prepare their client to not be there because to be honest when you do this kind of transaction you don't want to have anyone there you want to come to your brand new home and it's your energy going in there you don't want to, you don't want to interact with the other people because when you do sometimes it's a negative interaction oh absolutely and you just want it to be a smooth transition from close to move in so i always say treat it like a 3 p.m. thing, like get out of there by three, because I say there could be a moving truck rolling up around three, especially these days. In the other days, you always went to your lawyer to get the keys and then go to the property. That added actually an hour to two. 
But now the minute your lawyer tells you it's closed, you drive right to the property. The keys are there. So people are showing up in moving trucks with their families at 3.30 to move into properties. Yeah, thanks, David. I do want to pick your brain here because I'm sure there's some people like curious in terms of, let's say if there is an issue, the buyer has issues transferring the funds and it got delayed like a day. Or let's say the seller had some issues and can't give the keys on that day of. What are the repercussions for each side? So that's a very good question. In real estate law, it's time is of the essence. So the contract says today's the day. If you're asking for an extension, like let's say the purchaser can't get money, so they're asking for an extension, the seller does not have to legally allow that extension. They can allow it. In this day and age, they would allow it because it might be hard to find another buyer very quickly. And there can be penalties for that. It should be reasonable and they typically are. And some of those penalties are like, okay, you're going to pay, you know, one per diem on my mortgage, which is $42. You're going to pay additional legal fees, maybe $250. Or I'm making up some numbers, but you're going to pay property taxes as of today, not tomorrow. Even though you're extending to tomorrow, you owe taxes as of today. Small little things like that happen all the time. And it can escalate depending on, like I mentioned earlier, if there was a daisy chain of closings where someone was buying from someone who was buying from someone who was buying from someone and that first person couldn't close, well, then you would pay the per diem on three people's mortgages and you'd pay taxes on three people's deals. And that has happened and it can lead up to the thousands. But the moral of the story here is, yes, there can be extensions and all the time we see extensions. It's very common, but it's not written into the agreement that it's automatically allowed. And a seller can play hardball and charge extra fees or actually not close and say, no, you didn't close. I'm keeping your deposits and suing you. They can say that. It is very, very rare to ever see that happen. It's unreasonable and it's actually not bargaining in good faith, to be honest with you. However, it's unreasonable. However unreasonable it is, it is possible. And I have seen it once in my whole career. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, so we had, and I think that's a totally different thing where they don't close at all. And then, of course, because the onus is on the buyer to have to close, it's then up to the seller whether they want to take it to court. We actually had it with one of our clients. It took six to seven months, but then the buyer was held liable for the uh, difference in the selling price and whatever other additional penalties they had to pay. Because I think that time, it was a few years ago, the seller had originally sold somewhere around one2 but when they resold, it was just under a million. Like it was a significant difference where the market was as well. But because the buyers just couldn't come up with the money and they didn't close. Yeah. And we've, you know, more recently seen a few of those as well where someone couldn't close. And when you can't close, you do lose your deposit. That's for sure. And then the seller tries, must, and they have a duty to mitigate their damages. So they must relist and try to sell the property. And if they sell it uh, at fair market value, but it's for less, they can sue for the differences, which is the damages, even unrelated to that deposit amount. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this is all like excellent information. I think it's really valuable for everybody that's listening. I don't know how much more time we would need to go over. And if you could maybe quickly go over just on the buying side, when a purchase has been made, what can a buyer expect? Is there, you know, in addition to everything else that you've mentioned, is there anything else specific that you could add on for buyers? For sure. Just a couple extra things for a buyer. A buyer has to think about a mortgage first and foremost. So they want to be 
in good communication with their bank or mortgage broker. And same with us. We ask for the communication, for the information, and we start communicating with them as well. Because now it's bringing a third party to the bedroom, so to speak. It's the lawyer, it's the purchaser, and now their mortgage broker. And a lot of times when there is a delay, and we even talked about it during this call, it is, has to do with the mortgage, right? So you want to make sure that the mortgage is tight. That's one thing. Second thing is insurance. The client will have to buy insurance. So that's another small piece that's very important. And of course, we talked about title insurance. They'll have to pay that and get that policy. And that's usually included in the lawyer's fees almost always. And then there's land transfer tax. They have to pay as well on the purchase price. Other than that, it's pretty good. They do have to register and we help with all this stuff, but they have to register with the city and update their driver's license and do all that stuff. But that's normal. But other than that, it looks good. And then so there's a flurry of activity at the beginning and then it's peaceful for a little while. Then it gets very flurry of activity again just at the end when they have to sign paperwork, get the moving trucks going and all that stuff. And all of it comes together on the day of closing, which sounds a little stressful for some people. But if everyone puts in the good hard work, it plays out beautifully almost all the time, 99% of the time on the day of closing. I hear you. And I mean, we've always had great smooth closings with you. So, I mean, that's always been awesome. I think as well, one thing that we normally try and avoid, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, is avoiding the last day of the month or maybe sometimes people say it's better to have closings like Monday to Thursday and not at the end of the week. Now, do you have that's any thoughts on that? That's actually true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually true. I mean... Truth is, we have most of our closings on those days you mentioned. It's <laughs> yes. just, it just so happens that people tend to do that. It's a natural human quality that we do that. However, you're right. And the reason simply is volume. Banks are busier on Fridays. Banks are busier on Mondays, right? They're very busy on those days. And also lawyers are. And also the land registry is. So on those days, money moves slower, right? On month end, money moves very slow. Mm-hmm. It still happens. Our banking system actually got better during COVID-19, not worse. Everything's digital now. I'm seeing less and less major issues that we used to see now because everything kind of has to work digitally now. While we're on buyers, I just have one last question here. In terms of, it might happen like once in a while, but let's say we usually, as a standard practice with our team, we usually have a showing a basically a buyer visit the day before closing. Just make sure everything's insured that Everything looks the same exactly or works the same, just the same as when we first saw it. Now, by chance, if something does go wrong, let's say there's a, a leak or the stove completely shut down, the fridge shut down, we notify you. Um, what are your next steps towards helping? At our out? firm, we call those the after-closing issues, and we hate them, but they happen once in a while. And so what we do, we have a system for that. First, we look at the agreement of purchase and sale. So this is a hint to all realtors that basically you really want to put in that good working order clause and all your agreements of purchase and sale as best you can. And that all systems like ventilation, heating, air conditioning, electric, all in good working order on completion. It's very good. And we advise, this is an important thing, we advise all clients to really check those items. And we point out those items that are in the agreement on the day of closing and let us know if there was any issues by way of a quick video. I don't know if any other lawyers doing this, but we do this because what I want to know is If I can right away write to the other lawyer and say, hey, other lawyer, in the agreement, it says that on completion, these items would be working, but they're not. And here's proof. Then we have a fighting chance to get it fixed. But if you wait even more than a day and on Fridays, you can wait till Monday. That's another hint. That's why it's good to close on a Friday sometimes, actually, because then you have till Monday to report it, basically, because it's the day of closing. Plus, you can report it on the Monday. But basically, if you report it two days later, right, then the other lawyer can say, well, Everything was working on completion. I guess it's your deal, yours to deal with now, and that's really how you leave, it gets left. 
but sometimes you can fight it if you give notification about it right away. If there's nothing written in the agreement, like, or if it just says working order, doesn't say good working order, then it's very hard to fight it. And in any event, it is pretty hard to fight any of these after closing. We've had a great deal of success, I will say, over the years in this system that we created to get information out quick, but it's not perfect. It's not foolproof. Yeah, no, but this is excellent. This is very good information to know. Yeah, and I guess, David, I think that's all we have. And can you share your contact information for those who are listening so they can get expert advice from you in the future? For sure. Thank you. Yeah. So my name is David Feld. The law firm is Feld Kalia. Our slogan is We Are Law. Our website is wearelaw.ca. You can email my team and me as well at info at wearelaw.ca. It's info at wearelaw.ca. And you can also call our firm 416-203-6347. You can also always find me on Instagram and TikTok but I dare you to not judge me if you go to TikTok <laughs> and it is at, <laughs> yeah, it's at David the Feld, at David the Feld. And you can follow me there. Please do, because I'm going to go on a, some cool trips in the next little while. And I want to show you guys some cool stuff. <laughs> nice. Thank you, David. And uh, everyone listening, please follow and share this podcast with your family and friends, comment, ask questions and make requests on topics you'd like us to cover. Thank you so much, guys. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for having me.